And we've been in Luke for over 70 weeks. Something like that. George, how many? 73rd less. And we are in Luke chapter 24, and we will complete our study of Luke today. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to deal with some psalms. I'm going to start with Psalm 1, and I'm just going to start working through the psalms. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And I'm going to call this Psalms for the Summer. And then each summer, I'm going to try to do some psalms. So there are 150 of them. If we can deal with 10 a summer, we'll be done in 15 years. <laughs> and then when we start, <laughs> when we start our fall uh, study, we're going to go to the book of Revelation. Now, I have to do that, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, Harold Keaton came up to me a few weeks ago, and he said that you said that if we got that room on the fourth floor of the new building, you said you would go to uh, Revelation. And we're not going to get that. We've moved here, and this is where we're going to be forever. You owe us Revelation. So anyway, we'll go to Revelation. Okay, so that's, what we're, that's our plans, anyway, the Lord willing, for the next uh, several weeks. Okay, let's look at chapter 24, and today we're going to cover verses 36 to the end of the chapter. And you will recall that when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to uh, the two disciples on the Damascus road, or on the road to Emmaus, uh, they do not recognize Him in His resurrected body. And so, He begins to teach them through the Scriptures that the Messiah had to die and be raised from the dead. They think He's a stranger. Uh, they're not getting what he's saying, but they, when they reflect back on the teaching, they say that uh, their hearts were strangely warmed as Jesus taught them through the Scriptures. And then when he reaches their house in the city of Emmaus, he reveals himself. They, they know Jesus through the breaking of the bread. We don't know if it's something that he said or the way he handled the bread, but when he broke the bread and he blessed them, suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized it was Jesus, and just like that, he disappeared. So as they rushed back to Jerusalem in record pace to tell the disciples what had happened, they discover upon returning that Jesus got there first, and he appeared to Peter alone. And they said, well, what you're telling us has been confirmed by Peter because Jesus evidently has just appeared to Peter. So now we're going to pick up at verse 36 and this conversation is going on. It says, so now as they said these things, Jesus, and this means suddenly, stood himself, stood in the midst of them. He materializes out of nowhere and he appears to all of the disciples, all 120 of them that are in the upper room. Now, uh, where does he come from? I mean, what was he doing? He, he was in Emmaus. Uh, he appears and suddenly disappears. What does he do when he disappears? Where does he go when he disappears? Is he still walking along life's highway, but you just can't see? Uh, these are the kinds of questions that drive uh, people like myself more insane. <laughs> uh, how does he get there? 
You know, how does he arrive? How does he arrive in split-second time to uh, reveal himself to Peter? What kind of a body does he have? We don't know any of those things. All Luke tells us is this resurrected Jesus, who appeared before, appears again to all of them. And it says, Jesus himself. Again, there's an emphasis that it's the same Jesus that was crucified. And he stood in their midst, and he said, Peace to you, but they were terrified and frightened. Now, Jesus says, in anticipation, uh, calm yourself, uh, have a little bit of peace. Now look, peace to you. Now this can be a normal Jewish greeting, like peace and mercy. But in this case, because of the way it's phrased, look, peace to you, but they were terrified. I think he's saying, you know, calm yourself down, uh, but it doesn't do any good because these guys are terrified and frightened. By the way, that word, frightened, is the same word that was used to describe Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, when he was in the temple and the angel appeared to him and said, and he was frightened. Exact same word. Uh, you're not expecting to see an angel show up and you're not expecting to see a dead man show up in this case. So they're, they're frightened. And it says in verse 38, in verse 37, and they supposed they had seen a spirit. Probably old King James says they supposed they had seen a ghost. Uh, a specter. An apparition. Now, many Jews and a lot of people during that period of time, in fact, even today in some countries like Romania, uh, they believe that the spirit of a dead person hovers over the body for three or four days. And that uh, if the person didn't die in a state of rest and so on and so forth that that spirit can actually haunt that's where we get this idea of haunting so it's possible that they thought this was simply the spirit of Jesus that was hovering for three or four days as was the custom so look what happens it says they thought they had seen the spirit and then verse 38 says this and he said to them Number one, question number one. Why are you troubled? <laughs> now that's funny. <laughs> if you thought if you think you see the ghost, you've got some troubles. Uh, he says, Why are you troubled? And then question number two, and why do doubts arise in your heart? In other words, doubts that it is Jesus himself. Uh, now I want to ask you those same questions. Uh, why is it that you're troubled? Why is it that doubts rise in your heart when Jesus says to you, peace? When Jesus is alive, the resurrected Jesus is alive, and he says, and he pronounces to you, peace, why is it that so often that we're troubled and uh, we have doubts in our mind? Why is it that we humans uh, just can't take God at his word? Is there something in our constitution and our makeup that uh, produces that? Don't we think he hears our prayers? Don't we think he's concerned about us? They see him, uh, but they think they're seeing a ghost. And uh, despite what he says, they're troubled. And they've got doubts. They just can't believe that this is Jesus. Now remember that. Jesus has appeared to Mary. Or he, the angels have told Mary that Jesus is alive. We still have two weeks ago. Uh, last week. Jesus appeared to the two people on the road to Emmaus when they reached the house. 
Jesus appeared to Peter. And now he appears to all of them. And guess what they're still doing? Still down. Still troubled. Still thinking of seeing a ghost. Now that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, we won't turn there, but even when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it says they still doubt it, even after that. It's, uh, it's, it just blows your mind when you think of things. Now look what happens next. Look what he says in verse 39. He says, look, behold, take a look at my feet, my hands. It is I myself. He draws the attention to the wound marks in his hands and in his feet. Now why would he do that? Because ghosts don't have wound marks. That would be, I would guess that would be the reason. Uh, ghosts don't have any marks, do they? Do you think ghosts have scars from when they got hurt when they were a little child? Yeah, I have a scar right on my face. It's sort of faded now. But when I was six years old, I was running up on my porch and a kid slammed open, or I was running out of my house and uh, a kid had a door, had the screen door open, and when I came down the steps, he slammed the screen door in, and the hook caught into my face. And I have a scar there. Do you think, do you think angels and spirits get scars from accidents? I don't think so. So notice he says, handle me, uh, my hands and my feet. See it as I myself. So that's a command. Look, my hands and my feet. Handle me. See that command? Handle me. And see, look, handle me, and see. So he's calling them to use their senses. They're hearing. Listen to what I'm saying. Peace. Handle me. Touch. See. Sight. Use your senses. Uh, you'll. This isn't a vision. This, I'm not a specter. I'm not a. I'm not a spirit. And then he says this. He gives the reason. For telling them to handle and see him. For a spirit, in verse 39, does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And so, bones, uh, spirits don't have flesh. And evidently, when he appeared to them, he had flesh. Spirit doesn't have bones. Evidently, when he shows up and he appears to them, he has bones. Now, how can a person with flesh and bones appear and disappear? I don't understand that. But, that is the case. And he says, spirit doesn't have any of these kinds of things. They don't have a corporal body. And if they were, if Jesus was a spirit and he commanded them to touch, they would have reached for him and guess what would have happened to their hand when they got to his body? They would have gone right on through. So this is an evidence. He's saying, if you touch me, you'll know that I'm basically not a spirit. I am. It's me. It is I, rather. I have to say that, Mrs. Collins. It is I. Mrs. Collins used to teach English when I was at Criswell College my first round. So I always had to watch my grammar. Then she switched to psychology, and now she knows I'm out of my mind. <laughs> I just act crazy when I get up here anyway. Okay. Now, anyway. Now look at verse 40. Verse 40. Now some of your Bibles may not have this text in here. But in the King James, the New King James is in there. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In other words, he let them look at it and basically said, well, come on, touch me. Take a look. Okay. Uh, now, do you think this would be enough to convince you, if you were there that day, that he was real? Would that have been enough? Let's find out. 
But, verse 41, <laughs> look at this. Now, it says, while they still did what? Not believe. You see that? They still didn't believe. Still didn't believe. That's a hard, hard thing to imagine, is that they still didn't believe. But watch how the sentence reads. To verse 41. But while they still did not believe, for what? Joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? Now, I want you to notice something. They still don't believe. Would you agree to that? Number one, they don't believe. Why does Luke say they didn't believe in verse 41? They didn't believe for what? For joy. Now think about that for a second. They didn't believe because of the joy that overtook them. Or to put it this way, they didn't believe because it was too good to be true. It was such a shock to their system. They were overwhelmed that the truth that Jesus himself was alive just couldn't register. It didn't connect in their brain. Uh, you've ever seen people that have won the Publishers Clearinghouse? You know, they jump and they can't believe that, ah, did I really win? They jump, they, they realize they're jumping up and, and then they think, I'm making a fool of myself. Maybe, I, maybe this is a joke. Maybe this is candid camera. Did I really believe? They can't believe. Uh, yesterday at the graduation, uh, when the mics came back on, we presented uh, a Doctor of Divinity degree, an honorary degree to one of our professors, Dr. Roy Metz. And it was a surprise. And he couldn't believe it. He, we kept it a secret from him. No, he didn't know he was getting it. And so he was, he was shocked. Now he said, when he looked down the audience and he saw his wife there and his daughter, he said, I wonder why my daughter Mandy has come to the ceremony. This is, this is sort of crazy. And then they announced they were giving him a doctor's degree. And he couldn't believe it. Immediately there was a hesitation. Overwhelmed. Just couldn't believe it. But it was true. So this is what you have. It's like Jacob. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of his sons is Joseph, and he's sold where? Into slavery, into Egypt. And he thinks he's dead because the brothers come back and say, Joseph has died. But years later, guess what happened? They have to go to Egypt. You pastor preached about this not too long ago, didn't you? And they find out that Joseph is alive, and they come back and tell the dad, and they say, Dad, Joseph is alive. And guess what? I can't believe it. It was just too good to be true. That is what unbelief connected with joy looks like. You just can't believe, can't comprehend it. You know that song? What's it? It's just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. Now think about these words. Think about the words. You're just like heaven to touch. Does that sound like Jesus? Right there. <laughs> okay, now look at this. It says in verse 41, they believed, they did not believe because it didn't register. The joy was just too much. It was, it was too uh, much of a shock to the system. And they marveled. Verse 41 says, the word means wondered. They uh, said, what does this mean? What's, what's going on here? See? And so what Jesus says is this. He says, well, do you have any food? Do you have any food? 
And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now, how long do you think it takes to eat a snack like this? Piece of fish, some honeycomb. Maybe standing there, maybe sitting down, I don't know, but he eats it. Would you say it takes three minutes, two minutes, five minutes, whatever? I'll tell you how much time it took. Enough time for the truth to register that he was alive. Because now he's eating food, and finally it just, everything comes together, and they realize, hey, it indeed is true. So verse 44 says, then, so now they really have caught on. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus says, Now I want you to know that this is what all that this all these things that have just happened. My death my resurrection, I'm alive and you see me, is uh, what was spoken by the prophets. And the key word there is the word fulfilled. It has all been fulfilled. See? Been fulfilled. And verse 45 said, He opened their understanding. Why did He open their understanding? Here's the purpose statement. That, so that, in order that, they might comprehend the scriptures. See, that was the thing. They had read the scriptures before. They had heard the scriptures before, but they didn't comprehend it. They couldn't comprehend that Messiah would die. In their minds, he would overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom of Israel. But that wasn't the way God was going to set up the kingdom. The kingdom was going to be set up through the death of Christ. And so he opens the scriptures and he goes through the law of Moses, the first five books of Moses, the prophets, major and minor prophets, the Psalms or the writings. And notice this says all this concerned him. Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament. Now Luke doesn't tell us what he did, how this Bible study went. Uh, we know he did a similar thing when uh, he was on the road to Emmaus with the with the two disciples, he opened the scriptures to them, and but it doesn't tell. Did he quote a certain verse? <clears throat> probably not. He probably just told the story of how God led the children of Hebrew children out of Egyptian bondage, formed them into a nation, formed them into His children, and how He has a plan for all those that are His children, and that that plan is fulfilled in Jesus through the death and resurrection. This kingdom comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he said to them, verse 46, Thus it is written, now watch this, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary. This is a must. It was necessary. Number one, for the Christ, for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. See, that was part of God's plan all along. Uh, 2,000 years after his death, we just sort of take it for granted. For them, this was a shock. They just couldn't comprehend this. So he said, it was necessary. Now, what does necessary mean? 
It means necessary. That's right. It means necessary. There's no other way that God's kingdom could come into being except through his death and his resurrection. Now there's a second necessity. And that repentance should be preached. Look at that. A second necessity. And that repentance should be preached. Two things are necessary. Jesus had to die and be raised from the dead. And second of all, the people needed to be uh, addressed and called to realign their lives and their behavior with kingdom purposes. Now, what does it mean to realign your life according to kingdom purposes? Everything that Luke has said, how you handle your money, how you treat people with no status, it's a complete change of mindset. It's a life that's oriented, reoriented away from yourself. A life that turns away from me, 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 and is concerned outwardly for other people. So, he says that this repentance has to be preached. Now, the first necessity in verse 46 was accomplished by Jesus. We accomplished the second. We are to call people to repent. That repentance should be preached. Now look at this. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached. Look at this. Remission of sins should be preached. We should be telling people that Christ can forgive their sins. Now notice the next phrase. The remission of sins should be preached where? In His name. This is how it's to be done. Remission of sins should be preached in the name of Jesus. That means that we preach that you can have your sins forgiven through Jesus. It's by Jesus that we have our sins forgiven. There's a sense in which He is our high priest. You know, when Jews brought their sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, they gave it to the priest. He sacrificed it. Their daily, their daily uh, sacrifices, they gave it to the priest. They sacrificed it. And then the priest said, your sins are forgiven. Now, God's the only one that forgives sins. But guess who proclaimed the forgiveness of sin? It was the priest. The priest said, your sins are forgiven. Well, your sins, thank you for the offering. Here's the sacrament. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one that proclaims that our sins are forgiven. So we preach repentance. We preach forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. Everything we do is in the name of Jesus. We're baptized in the name of Jesus. We preach in the name of Jesus. We're healed in the name of Jesus. We eat the Lord's Supper in the name of Jesus. Everything is in the name of Jesus. In his name. Now, where is this to be done? Look at the end of verse 47. To all the nations. This message is a universal message. This message is a message to the world. For God so loved the world. It's why it's called the Great Commission. Look where the starting point is at the end of verse 47. Beginning at Jerusalem. So you start with the gospel in Jerusalem. And then you... Reach those people. Everybody gets a chance to hear you. And then you go out to the next region. No one should hear twice before everyone has heard once. Listen. No one should hear twice before everyone has heard once. You preach the gospel in Jerusalem. And then you don't just stay there. You take that gospel out to the next town. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, other parts of the world. 
to all the nations. See? Uh, in the Old Testament, Israel was the center of the universe. That's how the Jews saw Israel. It was the holy city. Like the Catholics say, Rome was the holy city, the eternal city. Well, the Jews said Jerusalem was the eternal city. People wanted to get saved, guess what they did? They came to Jerusalem. Came to Jerusalem. Why did they come to Jerusalem? Well, because that's where the offerings were made, right? That's where the atonement was made. You had to come to Jerusalem. But guess what we do with our message? We don't say come to Jerusalem. We say we're going to take it out to you. And we take the initiative. Now that is a necessity. See? This is why we say it's so important to do evangelism. Now in the Southern Baptist denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, we've done very poorly on evangelism for the past few years. We go out and we preach the gospel and when somebody proclaims faith in Christ, we baptize him. Our baptismal records have gone straight downhill for the past three years. So we need to get back on track. And uh, all denominations need to get back on track. So what he does is he says, this message has to be preached. Now then look what he says. Verse 48. He says, and you are witnesses of these things. What then? His death and his resurrection. You 120 were there when I died. You knew that I died. You were there when I was alive. You are witnesses of these things. Therefore, when you go and you speak, you have authority. Because you were an eyewitness. Well, how do we know those things happened? <laughs> we were there. We have authority. So, it was those who were to go out and preach the gospel. Now, Jesus says, before you do that, you need to be equipped. So look at verse 49. He says, Behold, I send you the promise of the Father upon you. But you shall tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high to carry out that commission. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, which Luke writes about in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit, ten days later, descends from heaven, just like it descended from heaven and rested on Jesus' his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and imbues uh, the disciples with power to go out and preach this gospel of the kingdom. And they are the first to be equipped and to preach this gospel. Now, Luke comes to his conclusion. Now, this is all Luke just saying this now. He's sort of summing up. And so Jesus led them, that's 120 as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. Now this blessing is not the blessing, the Lord bless thee, and he keep thee. It's not that blessing. This is a blessing of departure. If you want to know what this blessing's like, if you go over to Deuteronomy 33, you'll see how Moses blessed the people when he was ready to die. It's a very long blessing. It's an individual blessing. You look at how the Jewish forefathers, when they were going to bless their children. Now, Jacob blessed each child individually. It took a while. This is the kind of blessing. He's going to depart. So he's going to bless them. And this is what he's doing. He's probably talking to Peter and John individually. Blessing each one of them. Maybe all 120. And it came to pass in verse 51. While he blessed them. See, there's a time period going on here. He was parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Notice this is passive. This is happening to Jesus. He was parted, and he was carried up into heaven. Now, how did he carry... I don't know how you get carried up into heaven. 
I know that uh, I know how a rocket ship is propelled into heaven. I know there's fuel that sends a rocket ship up there. How does Jesus suddenly uh, go up into heaven? It says we know from other passages a cloud received him up into heaven. Maybe it was angels that carried him up into heaven. Swing low, sweet chariot. You know, who knows? But suddenly he's taken up. It shows you this is a divine action. Into heaven means the place where God dwells. He's exalted. He sits at God's right hand. That's what Luke's telling us. And in the gospel, in the uh, book of Acts, he, he tells us that even more clearly. So it says, and they worshipped him. Now we have something that's really different. Notice that. They worshipped him. They realize that he's exalted. He takes his position at God's right hand. And they returned to Jerusalem, just like he told them to do back in verse 40. With great joy. They are exhilarated. And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So Luke ends his gospel this way, and then he picks up with the rest of the story in Acts, which we've covered. Now let me give you a couple concluding remarks here. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see how the ending of Luke's gospel is connected to the beginning of Luke's gospel. Okay? The ending of Luke's gospel is connected to the beginning of Luke's gospel. Look at verse 44 where it says, These words which I speak to you, while I was, these words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Okay? All things must be fulfilled. Don't forget that. All things must be fulfilled that were in the Old Testament. You put that in your mind? This concept of all things must be fulfilled. Second of all, I want you to look at verse 48. And you are witnesses of these things. You see that? Two things. Verse 44. All things must be fulfilled which were written to me. And in verse 48. You shall be witnesses of these things. You were there when these things were fulfilled. You saw the death. You saw the resurrection. Two things. What? All things had to be fulfilled in the Old Testament. Number two. You were the eyewitnesses of these things. Okay? Now go over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. See how much of this sounds familiar. And when you get to Luke chapter 1, just start at verse 1. This is how Luke opens up his gospel. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been, what? Fulfilled among us. He says, now a lot of people have written about these things. Uh, just as those who from the beginning were, what? Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them. It seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things, from the very first, to write to you, an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, these things that Luke writes to Theophilus in this gospel, he writes somewhere around 65 A.D. All the events 
that are included in this gospel, he puts down on paper somewhere around 65 A.D. That means that these events took place 30-some years before. Would you agree with that? Okay. It's important that you know that. These things that he writes about have already been fulfilled. Have already been fulfilled. Now, was Luke there when Jesus died and was resurrected? No, he was a man from Macedonia that Paul picked up several years later on a missionary trip. Okay. But Luke writes about all these things, and by the time he writes about them, they've been fulfilled for 30 years or more. All these Old Testament prophecies. And guess how he knows that they have been fulfilled? Because he's taught the eyewitnesses who saw these things fulfilled, who were the apostles. See? In fact, he talks about the virgin birth, doesn't he? In chapter 2. Talks about an angel coming to Mary and saying, Mary, you're with child, the Holy Spirit's come upon you. All these. How does he know that? How does he know what an angel said to Mary? Oh, he's had to talk to Mary. See? He has eyewitness accounts that these things were fulfilled. How does he know they're fulfilled? Because they were there. And that's why we can be certain that the things said in that gospel are true. Now the second thing I want you to notice is all these events that Luke mentions in his gospel are related to the kingdom of God. Related to the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 31 there. Chapter 1, verse 31. The kingdom of God is basically the theme of Luke's gospel. Jesus is the theme, but the overarching theme is the kingdom of God. Now look what the angel says to Mary. Verse 31. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and you shall bring forth a child, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now notice, this is what it's all about. This was what the prophecy to Mary was all about. He is going to gather throne, and of his kingdom there will be no end. For Luke, Jesus' reign begins when he's resurrected, and he is lifted up and exalted into heaven, and he sits at God's right hand. So for Luke, the kingdom of God has already come in its initial stages. It's not here in its fullness. But right now, where is Jesus sitting? Is he sitting on a throne? Well, I can, we won't go there, but I can show you right in Revelation. He's sitting on a throne right now. See? So the kingdom, in some sense, has already begun. Now what does that mean? That means all authority has been given to him. By virtue of his resurrection, all authority, he says, has been given to me in heaven and where else? On earth. Guess what that means? That means Caesar's days are numbered. Hey, Caesar has been conquered. Rome has been conquered. What do you mean Rome has been conquered? 
Where Jesus died, Caesar was still on his throne. Oh yeah? For how long? When Jesus was raised and he took the throne. And all authority was given to him over heaven and over Caesar, over earth. Who was on top, Jesus or Caesar? Jesus. And let's say Caesar lived for another 20 years. Then what happened to Caesar? When he took his last breath, he did what? Was Caesar defeated? Who was still on the throne? Oh, When the Roman Empire eventually died out, who was still on the throne? Oh, guess what? Kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about that name. See, Jesus reigns. Now, through the Spirit, this is the message that we're to preach. This is the message that we're to convey. You see, the apostles who were eyewitnesses told the story as long as they lived, all the way up through John, maybe 90 or 100 A.D., and then John died, and then guess who had to take over and preach that message? John's disciples. And then guess who had to take it over in 150 A.D.? Their disciples. And then 350, their disciples. Now, 2009, who's to take over? We are. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we lift up and we say the Scriptures in the Old Testament of God establishing the Kingdom have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection. How do we know? Right here we have eyewitness accounts. They were there to see it. And this is how we're certain. Therefore we're to go out and we're to fulfill the Great Commission. Add it. All add it. Always add it. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this Gospel of Luke. We thank you that it has refreshed our souls. Oh Lord, help us to take this message to heart. Realize that it's more important than anything that we can imagine. It has ramifications for politics and society and not only eternal salvation, but now may we go out and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and He reigns as King of Kings over all the earth. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen.